The Age for Love by Paul Bourget. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Bologna Times. The Age for Love by Paul Bourget for the Tales of the Cities compilation. When I submitted the plan of my inquiry upon the age for love to the editor-in-chief of the boulevard, the highest type of French literary paper, he seemed astonished that an idea so journalistic, that was his word, should have been evolved from the brain of his most recent acquisition. I had been with him two weeks, and it was my first contribution. Give me some details, my dear Labarthe he said, in a somewhat less insolent manner than was his wont. After listening to me for a few moments, he continued, That is good. You will go and interview certain men and women, first upon the age at which one loves the most, next upon the age when one is most loved. Is that your idea? And now to whom will you go first? I have prepared a list, I replied, and took from my pocket a sheet of paper. I had jotted down the names of a number of celebrities whom I proposed to interview on this all-important question, and I began to read over my list. It contained two ex-government officials, a general, a Dominican father, four actresses, two café concert singers, four actors, two financiers, two lawyers, a surgeon, and a lot of literary celebrities. At some of the names my chief would nod his approval, at others he would say curtly, with an affectation of American manners, Bad, strike it off, until I came to the name I had kept for the last, that of Pierre Faucheret, the famous novelist. Strike that off, he said, shrugging his shoulders. He is not on good terms with us. And yet, I suggested, is there any one whose opinion would be of greater interest to reading men as well as to women? I had even thought of beginning with him. The devil you had, interrupted the editor-in-chief. It is one of Faucheret's principles not to see any reporters. I have sent him ten if I have one, and he has shown them all the door. The boulevard does not relish such treatment, so we have given him some pretty hard hits. Nevertheless, I will have an interview with Faucheret for the boulevard, was my reply. I am sure of it. If you succeed, he replied, I'll raise your salary. That man makes me tired with his scorn of newspaper notoriety. He must take his share of it, like the rest. But you will not succeed. What makes you think you can? Permit me to tell you my reason later. In forty-eight hours you will see whether I have succeeded or not. Go, and do not spare the fellow. Decidedly, I had made some progress as a journalist, even in my two weeks' apprenticeship, if I could permit Pascal to speak in this way of the man I most admired among living writers. Since that not far distant time when, tired of being poor, I had made up my mind to cast my lot with a multitude in Paris. I had tried to lay aside my old self, as lizards do their skin, and I had almost succeeded. In a former time, a former time that was but yesterday, I knew, for in a drawer full of poems, dramas, and half-finished tales, I had proof of it, that there had once existed a certain Jules Labarthe, who had come to Paris with the hope of becoming a great man. 
that person believed in literature with a capital l in the ideal another capital in glory a third capital he was now dead and buried would he some day his position assured began to write once more from pure love of his art possibly but for the moment i knew only the energetic practical labarthe who had joined the procession with the idea of getting into the front rank and of obtaining as soon as possible an income of thirty thousand francs a year what would it matter to this second individual if that vile pascal should boast of having stolen a march on the most delicate the most powerful of the heirs of balzac since i the new labarthe was capable of looking forward to an operation which required about as much delicacy as some of the performances of my editor-in-chief i had as a matter of fact a sure means of obtaining the interview it was this when i was young and simple I had sent some verses and stories to Pierre Faucheret, the same verses and stories, the refusal of which, by four editors, had finally made me decide to enter the field of journalism. The great writer was traveling at this time, but he had replied to me. I had responded by a letter, to which he again replied, this time with an invitation to call upon him. I went. I did not find him. I went again. I did not find him that time then a sort of timidity prevented my returning to the charge. So I had never met him. He knew me only as the young Ilya of my two epistles. This is what I counted upon to extort from him the favor of an interview which he certainly would refuse to a mere newspaper man. My plan was simple, to present myself at his house, to be received, to conceal my real occupation, to sketch vaguely a subject for a novel in which there should occur a discussion upon the age for love, to make him talk, and then when he should discover his conversation in print. Here I began to feel some remorse, but I stifled it with the terrible phrase, the struggles for life, and also by the recollection of numerous examples culled from the firm with which I now had the honor of being connected the morning after i had had this very literary conversation with my honorable director i rang at the door of the small house in the rue des bordes valmore where pierre faucheret lived in a retired corner of passy having taken up my pen to tell a plain unvarnished tale i do not see how i can conceal the wretched feeling of pleasure which as i rang the bell warmed my heart at the thought of the good joke i was about to play on the owner of this peaceful abode even after making up one's mind to the sacrifices i had decided upon there is always left a trace of envy for those who have triumphed in the melancholy struggle for literary supremacy it was a real disappointment to me when the servant replied ill-humouredly that Monsieur Faucheret was not in Paris. I asked when he would return. The servant did not know. I asked for his address. The servant did not know that. Poor Lion, who thought he had secured an anonymity for his holiday. A half hour later, I had discovered that he was staying for the present at the Chateau de Proby, near Nemours. I had merely had to make inquiries of his publisher. Two hours later, I 
bought my ticket at the Gare de Lyon for the little town chosen by Balzac. As the scene for his delicious story of Ursule Mirouet, I took a travelling bag and was prepared to spend the night there. In case I failed to see the master that afternoon, I had decided to make sure of him the next morning. Exactly seven hours after the servant, faithful to his trust, had declared that he did not know where his master was staying, I was standing in the hall of the chateau, waiting for my card to be sent up. I had taken care to write on it a reminder of our conversation of the year before, and this time, after a ten-minute wait in the hall, during which I noticed with singular curiosity and malice two very elegant and very pretty young women going out for a walk, I was admitted to his presence. Aha! I said to myself, this, then, is the secret of his exile. The interview promises well. The novelist received me in a cosy little room, with a window opening onto the park, already beginning to turn yellow with the advancing autumn. A wood-fire burned in the fireplace, and lighted up the walls, which were hung with flowered croton, and on which could be distinguished several colored English prints, representing cross-country rides and the jumping of hedges. Here was the worldly environment with which Fauchery is so often reproached, but the books and papers that littered the table bore witness that the present occupant of this charming retreat remained a substantial man of letters. His habit of constant work was still further attested by his face, which, I admit, gave me all at once a feeling of remorse for the trick I was about to play him. If I had found him the snobbish pretender whom the weekly newspapers were in the habit of ridiculing, it would have been a delight to outwit his diplomacy. But no, I saw, as he put down his pen to receive me, a man about fifty-seven years old, with a face that bore the marks of reflection, eyes tired from sleeplessness, a brow heavy with thought, who said as he pointed to an easy chair, you will excuse me, my dear confrère, for keeping you waiting. I, his dear confrère, ah, if he had known! You see, and he pointed to the page still wet with ink, that man cannot be free from the slavery of furnishing copy. One has less facility at my age than at yours. Now let us speak of yourself. How do you happen to be at Nemours? What have you been doing since the story and the verses you were kind enough to send me? It is vain to try to sacrifice once for all one's youthful ideals. When a man has loved literature as I loved it at twenty, he cannot be satisfied at twenty-six to give up his early passion, even at the bidding of implacable necessity. So Pierre Faucheret remembered my poor verses. He had actually read my story. His illusion proved it. Could I tell him at such a moment that since the creation of those first works I had despaired of myself, and that I had changed my gun to the other shoulder? The image of the boulevard office rose suddenly before me. I heard the voice of the editor-in-chief saying, Interview, Fauchery, you will never accomplish that. So, faithful to my self-imposed role, I replied, I have retired to Nemours to work upon a novel called The Age for Love, and it is on this subject that I wish to consult you, my dear master. It seemed to me, it may possibly have been an illusion, that at the announcement of 
the so-called title of my so-called novel a smile and a shadow flitted over fauchery's eyes and mouth a vision of the two young women i had met in the hall came back to me was the author of so many great masterpieces of analysis about to live a new book before writing it i had no time to answer this question for with a glance at an onyx face containing some cigarettes of turkish tobacco he offered me one lighted one himself and began first to question then to reply to me i listened while he thought aloud and had almost forgotten my machiavellian combination so keen was my relish of the joyous intimacy of this communion with a mind i had passionately loved in his works he was the first of the great writers of our day whom i had thus approached on something like terms of intimacy as we talked i observed the strange similarity between his spoken and his written words i admired the charming simplicity with which he abandoned himself to the pleasures of imagination his superabundant intelligence the liveliness of his impressions and his total absence of arrogance and of pose there is no such thing as an age for love he said in substance because the man capable of loving in the complex and modern sense of love as a sort of ideal exaltation never ceases to love i will go further he never ceases to love the same person you know the experiment that a contemporary physiologist tried with a series of portraits to determine in what the indefinable resemblances called family likeness consisted he took photographs of twenty persons of the same blood then he photographed these photographs on the same plate one over the other in this way he discovered the common features which determined the type well i am convinced that if we could try a similar experiment and photograph one upon another the pictures of the different women whom the same man has loved or thought he had loved in the course of his life we should discover that all these women resembled one another the most inconsistent have cherished one and the same being through five or six or even twenty different embodiments the main point is to find out at what age they have met the woman who approaches nearest to the one whose image they have constantly borne within themselves for them that would be the age for love the age for being loved he continued the deepest of all the passions i have ever known a man to inspire was in the case of one of my masters a poet and he was sixty years old at the time it is true that he still held himself as erect as a young man he came and went with a step as light as yours he conversed like rivarol he composed verses as beautiful as de Vigny's. he was besides very poor very lonely and very unhappy having lost one after another his wife and his children you remember the words of shakespeare's moore she loved me for the dangers i had passed and i loved her that she did pity them so it was that this great artist inspired in a beautiful noble and wealthy young russian woman a devotion so passionate that because of him she never married she found a way to take care of him day and night in spite of his family during his last illness and at the present time having bought from his heirs all of the poet's personal belongings she keeps the apartment where he lived just as it was at the time of his death that was years ago 
in her case she found in a man three times her own age the person who corresponded to a certain ideal which she carried in her heart look at goethe at lamartine and at many others to depict feelings on this high plane you must give up the process of minute and insignificant observation which is the bane of the artists of to-day in order that a sixty-year-old lover should appear neither ridiculous nor odious you must apply to him what the elder corneille so proudly said of himself in his lines to the marquise cependant j'ai quelque charme qui sont assez éclatants pour ne voir pas trop d'alarmes de ces ravages du temps have the courage to analyze great emotions to create characters who shall be lofty and true the whole art of the analytical novel lies there as he spoke the master had such a light of intellectual certainty in his eyes that to me he seemed the embodiment of one of those great characters he had been urging me to describe it made me feel that the theory of this man himself almost a sexagenarian that at any age one may inspire love was not unreasonable the contrast between the world of ideas in which he moved and the atmosphere of the literary shop in which for the last few months i had been stifling was too strong the dreams of my youth were realized in this man whose gifts remained unimpaired after the production of thirty volumes and whose face growing old was a living illustration of the beautiful saying since we must wear out let us wear out nobly his slender figure bespoke the austerity of long hours of work his firm mouth showed his decision of character his brow with its deep furrows had the paleness of the paper over which he so often bent and yet the refinement of his hands so well cared for the sober elegance of his dress and an aristocratic air that was natural to him showed that the finer professional virtues had been cultivated in the midst of a life of frivolous temptations these temptations had been no more of a disturbance to his ethical and spiritual nature than the academic honors the financial successes the numerous additions that had been his withal he was an awfully good fellow for after having talked at great length with me he ended by saying since you are staying in nemours i hope to see you often and to-day i cannot let you go without presenting you to my hostess what could i say this was the way in which a mere reporter on the boulevard found himself installed at a five o'clock tea-table in the salon of a chateau where surely no newspaper man had ever before set foot and was presented as a young poet and novelist of the future to the old marquise de Proby, whose guest the master was this amiable white-haired dowager questioned me upon my alleged work and i replied equivocally with blushes which the good lady must have attributed to bashful timidity then as though some evil genius had conspired to multiply the witnesses of my bad conduct the two young women whom i had seen going out returned in the midst of my unlooked-for visit ah my interview with this student of femininity upon the age for love was about to have a living commentary how it would illumine his words to hear him conversing with these new arrivals 
One was a young girl of possibly twenty, a Russian, if I rightly understood the name. She was rather tall, with a long face lighted up by two very gentle black eyes, singular in their fire and intensity. She bore a striking resemblance to the portrait attributed to Francia in the Salon Carré of the Louvre, which goes by the name of the man in black, because the color of his clothes and his mantle. About her mouth and nostrils was that same subdued nervousness, that same restrained feverishness, which gives to the portrait its striking qualities. I had not been there a quarter of an hour before I had guessed from the way she watched and listened to Fauchery what a passionate interest the old master inspired in her. When he spoke, she paid rapt attention. When she spoke to him, I felt her voice shiver, if I may use the word, and he, he, glorious writer, surfeited with triumphs, exhausted by his labors, seemed, as soon as he felt the radiance of her glance of ingenuous idolatry, to recover that vivacity, that elasticity of impression, which is the sovereign grace of youthful lovers. "'I understand now why he cited Goethe and the young girl of Marienbad,' said I to myself with a laugh, as my hired carriage sped on toward Nemours. He was thinking of himself.' He is in love with that child, and she is in love with him. We shall hear of his marrying her. There's a wedding that will call forth copy, and when Pascal hears that I witness the courtship, but just now I must think of my interview. Won't Fauchery be surprised to read it day after tomorrow in his paper? But does he read the papers? It may not be right, but what harm will it do him? Besides, it's a part of the struggle for life. It was by such reasoning, I remember, the reasoning of a man determined to arrive, that I tried to lull to sleep the inward voice that cried, You have no right to put on paper, to give to the public what this noble writer said to you, supposing that he was receiving a poet, not a reporter. But I heard also the voice of my chief saying, You will never succeed. And this second voice, I am ashamed to confess, triumphed over the other with all the more ease, because I was obliged to do something to kill time. I reached Nemours too late for the train, which would have brought me back to Paris about dinner-time. At the old inn they gave me a room which was clean and quiet, a good place to write, so I spent the evening until bedtime composing the first of the articles which were to form my inquiry. I scribbled away under the vivid impressions of the afternoon, my powers as well as my nerves spurred by a touch of remorse. Yes, I scribbled four pages which would have been no disgrace to the journal de Goncourt, that exquisite manual of the perfect reporter. It was all there, my journey, my arrival at the chateau, a sketch of the quaint eighteenth-century building, with its fringe of trees and its well-kept walks, the master's room, the master himself and his conversation, the tea at the end, and the smile of the old novelist in the midst of a circle of admirers, old and young. It lacked only a few closing lines. I will add these in the morning, I thought, and went to bed with a feeling of duty performed. Such is the nature of a writer. Under the form of an interview I had done, and I knew it, the best work of my life. What happens while we sleep? Is there, unknown to us, a secret and irresistible ferment of ideas while our senses are closed to the impressions of the outside world? 
certain it is that on awakening i am apt to find myself in a state of mind very different from that in which i went to sleep i had not been awake ten minutes before the image of pierre fauchery came up before me and at the same time the thought that i had taken a base advantage of the kindness of his reception of me became quite unbearable i felt a passionate longing to see him again to ask his pardon for my deception i wished to tell him who i was with what purpose i had gone to him and that i regretted it but there was no need of a confession it would be enough to destroy the pages i had written the night before with this idea i arose before tearing them up i reread them and then any writer will understand me and then they seemed to me so brilliant that i did not tear them up fauchery is so intelligent so generous was the thought that crossed my mind what is there in this interview after all to offend him nothing absolutely nothing even if i should go to him again this very morning and tell him my story and that upon the success of my little inquiry my whole future as a journalist might depend when he found that i had had five years of poverty and hard work without accomplishing anything and that i had had to go on to a paper in order to earn the very bread i ate he would pardon me he would pity me and he would say publish your interview yes but what if he should forbid my publishing it but no he would not do that i passed the morning in considering my latest plan a certain shyness made it very painful to me but it might at the same time conciliate my delicate scruples my amour propre as an ambitious chronicler and the interests of my pocket-book i knew that pascal had the name of being very generous with an interview article if it pleased him and besides had he not promised me a reward if i succeeded with fauchery in short i had decided to try my experiment when after a hasty breakfast i saw on stepping into the carriage i had had the night before a victoria with coat of arms drive rapidly past and was stunned at recognizing fauchery himself apparently lost in a gloomy reverie that was in singular contrast to his high spirits of the night before a small trunk on the coachman's seat was a sufficient indication that he was going to the station the train for paris left in twelve minutes time enough for me to pack my things pell-mell into my valise and hurriedly to pay my bill the same carriage which was to have taken me to the chateau de probe carried me to the station at full speed and when the train left i was seated in an empty compartment opposite the famous writer who was saying to me you too deserting nemours like me you work best in paris the conversation begun in this way might easily have led to the confession i had resolved to make but in the presence of my unexpected companion i was seized with an unconquerable shyness moreover he inspired me with a curiosity which was quite equal to my shyness any number of circumstances from a telegram from a sick relative to the most commonplace matter of business might have explained his sudden departure from the chateau where i had left him so comfortably installed the night before 
but that the expression of his face should have changed as it had that in eighteen hours he should have become the careworn discouraged being he now seemed when i had left him so pleased with life so happy so assiduous in his attentions to that pretty girl mademoiselle de Rousset, who loved him and whom he seemed to love was a mystery which took complete possession of me this time without any underlying professional motive he was to give me the key before we reached paris at any rate i shall always believe that part of his conversation was in an indirect way a confidence he was still unstrung by the unexpected incident which had caused both his hasty departure and the sudden metamorphosis in what he himself if he had been writing would have called his intimate heaven the story he told me was pers vargas as bale loved to say his idea was that i would not discover the real hero i shall always believe that it was his own story under another name and i love to believe it because it was so exactly his way of looking at things it was apropos of the supposed subject of my novel oh irony apropos of the real subject of my interview that he began i have been thinking about our conversation and about your book and i am afraid that i expressed myself badly yesterday when i said that one may love and be loved at any age i ought to have added that sometimes this love comes too late it comes when one no longer has the right to prove to the loved one how much she is loved except by love's sacrifice i should like to share with you a human document as they say to-day which is in itself a drama with a denouement but i must ask you not to use it for the secret is not my own with the assurance of my discretion he went on i had a friend a companion of my own age who when he was twenty had loved a young girl he was poor she was rich her family separated them the girl married someone else and almost immediately afterward she died my friend lived some day you will know for yourself that it is almost as true to say that one recovers from all things as that there is nothing which does not leave its scar i had been the confidant of his serious passion and i became the confidant of the various affairs that followed that first ineffaceable disappointment he felt he inspired other loves he tasted other joys he endured other sorrows and yet when we were alone and when we touched upon those confidences that come from the heart's depths the girl who was the ideal of his twentieth year reappeared in his words how many times he has said to me in others i have always looked for her and as i have never found her i have never truly loved any one but her and had she loved him i interrupted he did not think so replied fauchery at least she had never told him so well you must now imagine my friend at my age or almost there you must picture him growing gray tired of life and convinced that he had at last discovered the secret of peace at this time he met while visiting some relatives in a country house a mere girl of twenty who was the image the haunting image of her whom he had hoped to marry thirty years before it was one of those strange resemblances which extend from the color of the eyes to the timbre of the voice 
from the smile to the thought from the gestures to the finest feelings of the heart i could not in a few disjointed phrases describe to you the strange emotions of my friend it would take pages and pages to make you understand the tenderness both present and at the same time retrospective for the dead through the living the hypnotic condition of the soul which does not know where dreams and memories end and present feeling begins the daily commingling of the most unreal thing in the world the phantom of a lost love with the freshest the most actual the most irresistibly naive and spontaneous thing in it a young girl she comes she goes she laughs she sings you go about with her in the intimacy of country life and at her side walks one long dead after two weeks of almost careless abandon to the dangerous delights of this inward agitation imagine my friend entering by chance one morning one of the less frequented rooms of the house a gallery where among other pictures hung a portrait of himself painted when he was twenty-five he approaches the portrait abstractedly there had been a fire in the room so that a slight moisture dimmed the glass which protected the pastel and on this glass because of this moisture he sees distinctly the trace of two lips which had been placed upon the eyes of the portrait two small delicate lips the sight of which makes his heart beat he leaves the gallery questions a servant who tells him that no one but the young woman he has in mind has been in the room that morning what then i asked as he paused my friend returned to the gallery looked once more at the adorable imprint of the most innocent the most passionate of caresses a mirror hung near by where he could compare his present with his former face the man he was with the man he had been he never told me and i never asked what his feelings were at that moment did he feel that he was too culpable to have inspired a passion in a young girl whom he would have been a fool almost a criminal to marry did he comprehend that through his age which was so apparent it was his youth which this child loved did he remember with a keenness that was all too sad that other who had never given him a kiss like that at a time when he might have returned it i only know that he left the same day determined never again to see one whom he could no longer love as he had loved the other with the hope the purity the soul of a man of twenty a few hours after this conversation i found myself once more in the office of the boulevard seated in pascal's den and he was saying already have you accomplished your interview with pierre faucheret he would not even receive me i replied boldly what did i tell you he sneered shrugging his big shoulders we'll get even with him on his next volume but you know labarthe as long as you continue to have that innocent look about you you can't expect to succeed in newspaper work i bore with the ill-humor of my chief what would he have said if he had known that i had in my pocket an interview and in my head an anecdote which were material for a most successful story and he has never had either the interview or the story since then i have made my way in the line where he said i should fail i have lost my innocent look and i earn my thirty thousand francs a year and more
i have never had the same pleasure in the printing of the most profitable the most brilliant article that i had in consigning to oblivion the sheets relating my visit to nemours i often think that i have not served the cause of letters as i wanted to since with all my laborious work i have never written a book and yet when i recall the irresistible impulse of respect which prevented me from committing toward a dearly loved master a most profitable but infamous indiscretion i say to myself if you have not served the cause of letters you have not betrayed it and this is the reason now that fauchery is no longer of this world that it seems to me that the time has come for me to relate my first interview there is none of which i am more proud End of the age for love by paul bourget